Well, thank you so much, um, Senator Johnson. Um, we can have our panelists come up to the stage now. I'm going to keep things very brief here because you are here to hear from them and not from me. Um, so if, if our panelists could come join us on the stage, and I'll just have a very brief introduction of, of each of them. And a quick housekeeping note as well. Uh, if we do have time for audience Q&A at the end, the way that we're going to do that is you may have received a note card on your way in. Uh, fill out your question for the panel on your note card and hand it when we get to the Q&A to uh, staffers who will be moving throughout the aisles. That's how we're going to do Q&A here today. So as I mentioned, I will keep my uh, introductions and bios very, very brief um, because there's so much that we can say about, about these three doctors here. Um, first, we have on the far side of the stage, Dr. Robert Malone. He's an internationally recognized scientist and physician and the original inventor of the mRNA vaccination as a technology, DNA vaccination, and multiple non-viral DNA and mRNA, and many other scientific things I know nothing about and that he absolutely does. So he's, he is an expert on, on all of this that we're talking about here today. We also have um, next to uh, next to him is Dr. Uh, Pierre Corey, the former chief of the critical care service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Corey led, led ICUs in multiple COVID-19 hotspots throughout the pandemic, and he led his old ICU in New York City during the initial surge for five straight weeks. Last but not least, we have Dr. Peter McCullough. He attended Baylor University, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree. Uh, he has his medical degree from the uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and has also been a leader on this pandemic response. I'm going to stop there and hear from these guys and hand it over to our, our moderator, Senator Johnson. Well, again, thank you, Emil. Uh, I'm going to ask all of you to try and keep your answers pretty quick so we can, or pretty short so we can move uh, through this and get as much information out as possible. I want to start where we left off on January 24th, and I want to explore the vaccines. Let me start, and I'll throw it open to whoever wants to answer this one. They changed the definition of vaccine. Can, can somebody explain what they did and why, and you know, why the mRNA is different than the one of the traditional vaccine? Because then I'm going to ask you how the mRNA actually works and what it's doing. But, you know, Dr. Malone, you're the expert here. Do you want to handle this? So I don't know why they did that, and I don't know what the logic was behind it. Uh, clearly, I think you have a suspicion, though, don't you? Yeah. Uh, well, but that that but we're we're the response. We're the grown-ups in the room. That's right. We're going to stick <laughs> not with the facts propagandists, here. right? So we're going to try to stick with the facts. So what we know was the definition was changed because this is a gene therapy applied for the purpose of vaccination. That was one of the topics that uh, uh, prompted this. Sharp, sharp shock response, which is always the hallmark of when you're saying something sensitive from the press, from the corporate media. But the truth is that this is a genetic uh, a modification technology applied to the uh, vaccine domain. These products do not directly evoke an immune response. They indirectly do so by causing your body to manufacture the protein that then elicits the immune response. So the products didn't meet the classical definition of what a vaccine was. And uh, I speculate that, it, but it's backed by the observation of the uh, regulatory response to the submitted data packages that were used for the EUA, which is that the FDA um, chose to elected to apply the vaccine checklist for the purpose of evaluating these dossiers that were submitted for authorization. And 
they, uh, they elected to not apply the checklist that would have uh, been required for anything that involved genetic modification technology. And so they had to change the definition. This is my interpretation. I speculate they, had to re they were required to change the definition because otherwise they were going to get caught in the logic trap of having applied this vaccine checklist, not the uh, gene therapy checklist. And so they had to modify the terms in order to do that. Clearly, they uh, made a huge mis technical, tactical mistake there in terms of their mission. Uh, and that was then propagated throughout the world. So, so again, a, a lot of test studies weren't done that otherwise would have had to be done if it were really considered genetic therapy. And that's very, very well documented in a pair of articles that were pub published by Trial Site News. We um, then abstracted that and put it out at our Substack. But um, it goes, it, they have a very senior regulatory professional that went through both the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna dossier point by point by point documenting all of this. So again, a standard vaccine is, describe a standard vaccine, what, what it is, and then we'll go to exactly what the mRNA is doing in the cell. Well, you know, a, a vaccine is either <clears throat> a, a protein uh, that the body reacts to, like a tetanus shot, uh, or it's um, a, a killed virus, uh, or it's a live, attenuated, disabled virus that can't fully infect the body. It's, it's one of those three. Uh, in this case, uh, it, it is genetic technology, either messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA technology. And the other big difference is, a genetic technology has a much longer window of follow-up necessary than with this standard. Absolutely. So, so, one, one small modification, also polysaccharides are also used in vaccine products. So again, t talk about exactly what it's doing. I, you know, I was talking to Dr. David Wiseman. He said there's like about four things the mRNA vaccine is doing inside the cell. I, I, I could name two that I remember, but what exactly from your, what, what do we know? What is it doing? It's causing it to produces spike protein, it's activating or juicing up the mitochondria. I mean, you, you describe this. So there's a, a cluster of things that we can say for sure are happening in, in based on clinical responses, and then there are things which we infer are happening based on laboratory bench experimentation. And one of those involves the toxicity to the mitochondria associated with the expression of the spike and maybe some of the other aspects. I think the key thing to comprehending this, trying to keep it simple, is that the vaccine products, these mRNA vaccine products, as opposed to the adenovirus, okay, have three main components that have activity. One is the actual formulation, the particle. People talk about nanoparticles. The particle has components that have never been tested before for safety. Um, and these have, um, these components include positively charged fats, which our body normally doesn't produce. They are synthetic. And they insert themselves into cell membranes and change the biology of the cell membranes. Another thing is the payload, which is the usual term used in gene therapy, which is the thing that's produced. Okay, so the thing that's produced with these mRNA coronavirus vaccines is the spike protein. 
In the spike protein, yes, it has two tiny point modifications which differentiate it from normal spike. But otherwise, in terms of the business part of spike, it's almost identical, including the uh, binding domain, receptor binding domain. So there's the spike protein as the payload. And then there is the RNA part, and it's not really RNA. It's not natural RNA, although this is what was promoted to physicians. All docs, if you, if you talk to them that were involved in this, said, oh, yeah, I talked to my pharma rep, and they said, yeah, this is regular RNA. It goes into your body. It lasts for a couple of hours. It's gone. That's all a lie. Okay? This is a highly modified synthetic biomolecule polymer which sticks around in your body based on the cell publication from the Stanford team for at least 60 days. They didn't test beyond that. Okay, this is nothing like regular RNA. It doesn't behave like RNA. It's intrinsically immunosuppressive. Um, it, it modifies this, the interaction of the immune system in the cell and the response to the cell um, and the cell's biology itself. So there's these three parts. There's the, the part that gets it in. That has toxicity. It has never been characterized well. There is the polynucleotide, which is not really mRNA. It's a modified kind of uh, um, hyper-stable uh, um, uh, linear polynucleotide, but it's not a natural product. And then there's the thing that it makes, which is the spike protein, which has a whole cluster of intrinsic toxicology, including what you said, but many, many other things binds to platelets, activates clotting, breaches the blood-brain barrier, opens tight junctions, affects the heart. It just goes on and on and on and on. And we weren't told about that. No, no, it's not that you weren't told about that. That information was didn't even know. Act actively suppressed. No, it wasn't that you didn't, you didn't know. Remember, I went on Brett Weinstein, and I said, spike is a toxin. That elicited a prompt, sharp shock from the whole apparatus the, the time, even Epoch Times was taken aback. We were all taken aback. Most of us had never encountered fact checkers before. And what we've learned since then is what happened was when I talked about spike as a toxin, it elicited a concerted propaganda push, which was a, a, precisely akin to what you experienced with ivermectin what, what has been experienced with so many things, and when I said these are gene therapies, that also elicited this prompt shock response. So let's talk about the biodistribution, because that was, we were told it was gonna stay in the muscle, okay? And, but the nanolipid particles designed to permeate, difficult to permeate barriers, right? Absolutely. And, and Pfizer knew because under a FOIA request by the Japanese regulators, talk about, who, who wants to talk about the biodistribution of the vaccine, which wasn't supposed to biodistribute at all? I, and, so, the and the impact of that distribution. Well, I, th I think that notion needs a little bit of a correction. So there's a paper where they did a purportedly biodistribution analysis to see where these particles that's in the vaccine, where would, where would go. And they measured essentially lipids that make up these particles. They actually didn't study the lipid nanoparticle completely. So I think it's actually been mischaracterized and misinterpreted. It's really just two of the component fats that distribute widely. So we don't actually have proof that the entire lipid nanoparticle distributes. However, I'm just gonna say as a clinician, not as a basic scientist, just observing the extent of disease, the amount of symptoms, the rapidity in which they develop, like you had mentioned, we're seeing deaths occurring, if not immediately within 12, you know, 24 to 48 hours, 
clearly it's leaving the arm. I mean, it does, you do not require a basic science degree to understand that this thing is being distributed and causing wicked amount of diseases. So before we administered billions of doses of this, isn't it also true, we probably should have known what the bio, we should have done a study on the biodistribution? Okay, Ron, um, I specifically spoke to Peter Marks. I arranged for a teleconference with Peter Marks, head of CBER, has overall responsibility. He, that teleconference included a representative from the PR arm of the FDA. So I had a one-on-one -on -one with him about precisely this, this question. What was submitted in the regulatory packages is absolutely not aligned with regulatory norms globally in the Committee on Harmonization, okay? What, what they were allowed to do was cobble together data from other products, other tests. They never actually tested in animals in the non-clinical package the complex that he's describing. What they used was a surrogate, an mRNA that encodes for the luciferase protein. Everybody thinks the devil. It's the name of the protein that makes the firefly tail glow. And what they used was the least sensitive method of whole animal imaging to detect where that went. And they still showed that the distribution was basically systemic, but what is normal in, this is, I, I invented this technology, I was the first one to do it, okay? Um, the way that, if you wanna do the most sensitive, what you do is you take samples of the tissue, you grind them up, and you do an assay that's hyper, hypersensitive, and then you will know exactly where it goes. They, they, they somehow, the FDA, either had willful ignorance or profound incompetence. And they allowed, the, agent, the agency allowed the uh, manufacturers to submit biodistribution data that had nothing to do with the RNA encoding spike. They never tested that. They tested a surrogate and they used the least sensitive method possible to characterize that surrogate. I said this in the Brett Weinstein podcast. So, so Dr. McCulloch, uh, in, in our, January 24th event, and we had a whistleblower uh, coming forward. Some, he had three doctors uh, that worked for the Defense Department that were looking into their database, DMED. And they were seeing pretty alarming increases in number of diagnoses, you know, tenfold increase in diagnoses of neurological, you know, threefold of certain cancers, that type of thing. Written another more than one oversight letter here. We're still not getting squat. I mean, here we are, you know, August, uh, eight months, seven months later, and Department of Defense still can't explain other than, oh, we had a glitch. Not acceptable answer. Can, can you talk about what you think is most likely, what you're seeing in terms of vaccine users? Can you explain how the, the, the mRNA vaccine could result in, or if you believe is resulting in, certain types of injuries? Yeah, so I'm in practice in Dallas, Texas, so tomorrow I'll see and examine patients directly. Uh, like some of the doctors in the room here. So I am seeing patients on a regular basis. There's not a single clinic session that I have where there isn't a patient who suffered a consequence of taking one of the vaccines. We can just take the things that the regulatory agents agree the vaccines cause. So that would be heart damage or myocarditis with the messenger RNA vaccines, but also shown with the adenoviral vaccines in the medical literature and then blood clots, which are shown with the adenoviral vaccines, but also with the messenger RNA vaccines 
in the medical literature. We have a thousand peer-reviewed papers in the medical literature describing vaccine injuries. Now, that's, that's not VAERS, that's not DMED, that's in the medical literature. The common themes are the spike protein gets into these organs. In all the autopsy studies, when people have taken the vaccine and died, and they do an autopsy, the spike protein is in the brain. There's a re recent paper from Germany from Baumeier and colleagues, it's in the heart. The coroners and the pathologists agree these are fatal cases of myocarditis. Fatal. That the vaccine caused fatal myocarditis. The medical literature agrees that the vaccines cause a blood disorder called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpuria. And I think if even if we stayed in the range of the accepted vaccine injuries that the regulatory agencies are telling us about, they appear to be happening in large numbers they can and are, are fatal, and the ecological analyses of seeing large numbers of deaths or seeing uh, you know, higher rates of things in the military, what have you, uh, is this secondary wave. What we need now is to fulfill a duty of vigilance. Vigilance. The idea is there's been a brand new investigational technology of which uh, more than two-thirds of Americans are taken. Our government has a duty for vigilance and its safety before efficacy. Now I've chaired or been on over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for clinical trials, including ones for BARDA and NIDDK for the NIH. I will tell you, anything that happens within 30 days of taking a medical product, anything that happens, causality is irrelevant. From a regulatory perspective, it counts. Anything within 30 days counts. What we are seeing is clearly a ton of action within 30 days, and it all counts. No one can talk away or explain away those cases, and they shouldn't. It all counts, but they're not counting it. I mean, the, I mean isn't that the But, but the, the demand truth? is for America to hear this, and America to demand, demand uh, accountability, account vigilance, and what we desperately need right now are two things. We need risk prediction. Who is going to be the next victim, and how can it be avoided? And the second thing is, we need strategies on how to treat it. So how do we, you know, one of the things that has been most depressing to me from the start is how close-minded the medical establishment has been, the general public, uh, just not willing to open their eyes and take a look at the evidence right in front of their face. The, so, the term to use is called willful blindness. And how does this happen? A recent Texas A&M survey, anonymous survey that doctors filled out, 10% of doctors don't believe the vaccines are effective or, or safe, 10% of doctors. I can tell you, my estimate is 99% of doctors took these vaccines. And once somebody takes a vaccine, it's in their mind to say, listen, it's in their body, I don't wanna hear about it, I don't wanna hear about it, I don't wanna know about it, because they actually have, they are gripped in personal fear that something is going to happen to them. They can't articulate it, and that's the typical uh, uh, reaction you'll hear from people in the public once they've taken a vaccine. It is a mental state of willful blindness, and it's a very strong psychological fate driven by fear. So Dr. Corey, can you, you know, why don't you chime in here? What, yeah, I, what, what is your explanation on this? What are you seeing in, with colleagues? Yeah, so my practice now um, is totally devoted to the care of the long hauler and the post-vaccine injured, and I see patients every day. Um, it's 
shocking their pre-vaccine health status. Many of them are relatively young, totally healthy, no comorbidities, fully functional, have careers, worked out, eat well, and now they're absolutely disabled, debilitated. And these are not rare examples. We have to emphasize this. Just looking at the VAERS data alone, you're talking about million. And the only thing that VAERS fails at, in my opinion, is the underreporting. Describe right? so, totally dis dis disability. Yeah, so, so the, the most common thing I see in the uh, vaccine injured is, is what's called a small fiber neuropathy. So they're the tiny little nerve endings that are just under the skin, which mediate things like uh, temperature, pain, uh, vibrations. And they're on fire. These, these little uh, nerve endings are constantly being stimulated. So these patients are suffering with shock-like feelings, burning. I have patients who woke up three weeks after the vaccine. Their entire body is on fire. One young woman spent two months in bed with rotating ice packs. And by the way, many of them have killed themselves. I wouldn't say many, but there have been suicides associated because it's, it's nearly impossible to sit in your own skin when it's on fire. And so, and then they have such bizarre, and, and the, uh, the pattern, it comes and it goes, it's unpredictable, they'll have a good day, and then they'll have, you know, a day where they're decimated. And when they try to explain what they're feeling, they appear to what I call now system physicians, because, you know, to Peter's point about this psychology, it's, it's, there is a willful blindness, but I'm just going to go back to the, the two things that I've observed, which is unrelenting propaganda and censorship. They are not being provided with the information of what's really going on. They're, get, they're, they're living on a diet of high-impact medical journals and agencies, which are clearly under the control of those who are propagating the vaccine. So they're only going to get a selective view of the true data. And, and living on that diet is going to cause them to do very strange things, like tell people to get vaccinated after they've just had COVID. Right? So the amount of things that have just lost all logic is incredible. But what it has led to, and, and again, to emphasize what Robert said, I mean, the spike protein is probably the most toxic protein in history. The, the, the amount of morbidity and mortality it has unleashed, it, it's, it's remarkable that we have to have this little event to talk about it in a small group, because this is information that should be widely known. In my opinion, going for these vaccines have to stop. They've clearly failed every regulatory standard for safety, efficacy. They don't work. We know they don't work. The actual data showing that there's a negative efficacy now, those who are quadruple boosted are getting it at higher rates, and they're dying more often. So all of these narratives that have supported, they're divorced from the science. But going back to these patients, the other thing that they're all left with, because we talked about the mitochondria, which is the energy-forming uh, unit of the cell, they have inordinate fatigue. And then they have debilitating what's called post-exertional malaise. So if they try to do an activity, they go to the store for milk, they're in bed for six hours, my, my more severe ones. Others, they just have to really regulate their activity. They cannot work. They cannot uh, participate in social activities. And, and, and the other thing is, you know, I spend a lot of time with these patients, and I always say this, the first 10 minutes when they see me is them telling me about their journey through the system doc. And, you know, we use this term gaslighting. And, and here's the other thing, and I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be a little bit forgiving of the physicians, but going back to that spike protein, what's happening is, and, and I want to call out Dr. Paul Marek, who's with us, is that what needs to happen is we need a new discipline, a new scientific discipline studying the toxicity, the clinical toxicity of the spike protein. And it has to be a new, it has to be a new branch of science. 
What's happening is the patients are going to see neurologists, rheumatologists, gastroenterologists with a whole host of problems. None of the doctors are intellectually equipped to understand what is causing that disease. They're not being told that it's a spike protein. They're not being educated on what the, the actual pathophysiologic mechanisms that are triggered by the spike. And, you know, I'm going to credit Paul for literally starting the first textbook. You know, on our organization's website, I don't know, Paul, we have 300 references now. Paul's deeply studying the literature. And by the way, it's hard. You have to go to second and third tier journals, Peter. You're not going to New England Journal to find out about the What I was going to say, though, is so many of the patients tell me, the doctors tell them they don't know what's causing their disease, but it's definitely not the vaccine. So the certainty that it's not the vaccine, but they don't know what it is, but they're certain it's not the vaccine, speaks to this willful blindness or almost this trance that doctors are in. Well, and the point I want to make, and one of the reasons I keep doing this is because I've been, I've been advocating for the vaccine injured. I've, I've, it's, like I say, I've, I've, I've hugged them, okay? Um, I've seen the tears. Uh, put yourself in that position. You, I mean, you're, you're, you're disabled. And you go to a doctor, and the doctor just tells you, you it's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. And oh, by the way, what, what you think might have caused this, no way. There's no, no way the vaccine but, caused it. Just think of that mental state. But, I got, but, but Senator, I wanted to add to this that uh, as a cardiologist, the types of disabilities that I'm registering are very objective. So when a patient has myocarditis, the heart is damaged visibly by MRI. It's weak. We can see this. It's clear. Uh, when I diagnose people with these very large blood clots and their legs are swollen and they're shot to the lungs and they can't breathe, it is so objective that it, it's undeniable they're disabled. Can I make one point but, but, on that? It, but then it's, what's the cause? I mean, what else causes myocarditis? What else also causes that kind of clotting? Myocarditis can happen. Uh, it's very rare, about four cases per million in uh, typically young boys after a parvovirus infection or Coxsackie infection. Sometimes it's, uh, it, it, we don't know the cause of it. The current estimates from Kaiser Permanente in a paper by Scharf and colleagues is with the vaccines, 530 cases per million. So we're talking a hundredfold increased rate of myocarditis. Dr. Corey. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, so Dr. McCall is a cardiologist, and this terrible toxicity in the heart, it's true. There are objective findings. You can see an enlarged heart. You can see a dysfunctional heart. The, the flip side is what, what, what has just really uh, shocked me about so many of my patients. They go to the doctors. They get lots and lots of tests. It's almost like a perfect storm, which makes the plight of the vaccine injured far more horrendous than, than it otherwise would be, is that many of the tests are normal. Early on in the post-vaccine period, you can find sort of elevating clotting, you know, uh, indices that it might be clotting or inflamed. But by the time I'm seeing them months down the line, all tests are normal, not, not involving the heart. But the small fiber neuropathy, in order to make that diagnosis objectively, you have to do a little skin biopsy. Some of them have had this, so they have a documented uh, diagnosis. But most of the doctors, they see a poor, apparently an ill patient, because the vaccine injury can look okay, they're standing, they're talking, they're describing what they feel, all the tests are normal, and then they lead to these diagnoses of anxiety. Or this other garbage diagnosis, which is called functional neurological disorder, which is another way of saying they're crazy, right? It's all in their head. And, and 
you know, I'm trying to be forgiving for the doctors. I just, they, they're just not aware that it's, that it's a toxin. This, this vaccine is a toxin. They're not aware of how it causes the disease. And there's just so little understanding. And then there's what, what Dr. McCullough's talking about. There is this willful blindness. They don't want to recognize it. There's a psychology that's preventing them from, from recognizing it. So, so Dr. Malone, I, I know you want to make a statement, but I want to first throw it to you because I believe you're vac you were vaccine injured, correct? So first of all, I'd like you to describe what happened to you, but I'd also ask the question, you know all this, you still got the vaccine. I mean, can you just sort of explain that? Yeah, so I get this all the time. This is uh, probably every third well, wasn't that good a question? No, it's okay. It's just that I've answered it probably at least 100 hours on podcasts already. Um, uh, I knew a lot of the risks. Um, I knew that the regulatory package was inadequate. This information about the scope of the risks that we now know, the profile of pathology, was not only unknown, it was actively suppressed. When I took the jab, which was in the first wave, administered by the National Guard with Moderna, I took two doses, and I was suffering from long COVID because I was in the first wave of infection in February. And I had, I was severely compromised, significantly compromised. I'm a farmer and a carpenter, not only these other things, and I have to work a farm, and I could hardly walk up a hill. Um, so there was a logic promoted in the press um, and in social media that um, receiving another bolus of antigen would increase your immune response that for some reason paradoxically had not cleared the virus or had not uh, cleared whatever was driving the long COVID because at the time long COVID was denied by most people. Uh, another one of these cases, no, that can't possibly be happening. These are not the droids you're looking for. Um, and so I had two drivers. One was I had long COVID and there was speculation that it might, the vaccine, might mitigate those symptoms by giving the patient a bolus of antigen. And I also knew that I had to travel internationally, and that's proven to be true. Um, and I think that I have given benefit to the community because I've been able to travel that I would not have been able to give. Took two doses, I said it was, uh, as they brought it to our county, we only had Moderna, it was National Guard. First dose, no particular symptoms. Second dose, um, I developed a hypertension to 230, uh, racing heart, um, restless leg, uh, tinnitus, narcolepsy, a whole cluster of symptoms. And then Jill, my partner, went online and looked up this new website that had just kind of come to prominence, how bad is my batch? And lo and behold, I, the second batch was right in the sweet spot of one of these that had a very high mortality and morbidity. So unfortunately, I drew the bad card. Um, and in terms of the logic, Robert, why did you do this when you knew all these things? I didn't know all these things. None of us knew all these things. They were all being actively suppressed. But let me give you a quick citation. This is how important this is. In the journal Hypertension, that syndrome he described is clearly documented in people taking the vaccine, particularly after the second shot. Within the last three months in JAMA, a paper from Burhild and colleagues from three uh, uh, Nordic countries report within 28 days of taking a vaccine, 
and they clearly excluded people who have ever had the infection before. Within 28 days of taking the vaccine, and they have Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca there, 7,700 intracranial hemorrhages and strokes. And in a blood pressure at 240, that could have easily happened. I, I'm, I'm lucky to be alive. It's, it's the consequence of having a decent cardiologist in, in Charlottesville who was, uh, has gotten so burned out in, in Seville medicine that she picked up and moved out of the country. She now lives in Mexico. Um, this, is, this is what happens. You, and I'd like to get back, if you don't mind, and touch on the what happened to our colleagues question because it relates to that sign right behind you, crony capitalism, big pharma, COVID, and the vaccines. Our colleagues are in a position where they have multiple economic forces and social forces driving at them. Any of them that are, you know, understand to get to where you're, if you're somebody like these two characters sitting here on the dais, um, they have been through something like pushing 30 years of training and education. Um, they have expended the equivalent in, in current terms of something around 750,000 to a million dollars. Um, they have most, and, and these two are typical. What you're seeing, the only ones that seem willing to speak out are the senior ones that are at a stage in their career where they've amassed enough status, enough wealth, they've paid off their loans, and they're kind of, in some cases, a little aggravated about how the system has been working or not working, and they're seeing things like is my case. I've seen my profession as a clinical research specialist just be ground into the dust. I have people coming to me all the time from the clinical research space and regulatory affairs space saying, how can we ever recover legitimacy after what's happened here? But the point is that we have this not a, we have this amazing confluence of propaganda, targeted defamation, gaslighting, personal attacks, um, financial incentives, uh, and suppression of any information that together has resulted in an environment in which there is really strong disincentives to saying anything and um, a very concerted effort, this is, this is being blunt, big tech and legacy media have actively prevented the ability of patients to obtain informed consent. You were speaking about the tragedy of the vaccine injured. And those of us that have been in the front lines and dealing with this, I think the most notable example is the Facebook groups that were set up by the vaccine injured that accrued thousands and thousands of patients just saying, I've experienced this problem, and they got deplatformed. Another great example that's now coming to fore, that one of the things we haven't touched on is the reproductive risks, which have been denied, flat out. There's no reproductive risks here, right? Safe in pregnancy, fully safe in pregnancy. If you go back to the study that they use, that they cite, this very limited brief window where the data was dominated by second and third trimester women, if you break out and look at the first trimester women, very small number of first trimester women that took the jab in the first trimester, the spontaneous abortion rate is through the roof. It's greater than 90%, okay? And what happened was, remember, read back. It's so many things we forget. Women early on started to say, I'm having changes in my menstruation. 
postmenopausal women were saying, I've started bleeding. Parents reporting as the children's vaccine started rolling out, their young girls are menstruating way before they start normally start. Okay, um, lost and and you know delays in menstruation, and then in a subset, very heavy flow. Well, very heavy flow for I'm, I'm not an obstetrician or a gynecologist, but you know I know enough about medicine. That's often a clinical hallmark of spontaneous AB. And now what we're starting to hear is back then what we heard was literally the same language that was used in the mid-century, that women were being hysterical. You know, they were, they were, these are just hysterical women. This is all in their head. This is just imagined. And now they're finally coming around to acknowledging, well, maybe there's something here. And meanwhile, what I'm hearing, just like these two have been saying, hey, this is what we're seeing in the clinic. What I'm hearing is in the birthing centers, in the maternity wards, we're seeing a collapse in live births. What's going on? It's, you know. So, you know, one, one thing I've talking to doctors, I mean, there's an abject state of fear because of what's happened to people like you. Okay, I mean, it's a legitimate fear. It's, it's not just a financial fear. They've always wanted to be a doctor. They don't want their medical license hold. They want to continue to treat patients and, and heal patients and save lives. Um, so, so that's a real issue. But on the flip side, the vaccine injured also don't want to be ostracized. You know, they, they don't want to be, you know, so there's just such an enormous fear of coming forward. I, I want you to, because I think you've suffered the greatest, can you quickly, you know, just describe how this has cost you, what I did to you, you know, by, get, by giving you that platform. Trust me, I, I always feel guilty. Thanks, Ron. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I will say that um, uh, my first, I, I'd lost three jobs in the, in the pandemic. The first one I voluntarily left. Um, I could tell very quickly that I couldn't ethically participate as a leader, as a clinical leader of a hospital that was literally offering patients no treatment. And that's in the ICU, right? That's early on. Um, so that one, I left. Uh, soon after that, um, I took a job um, in a neighboring city, and then after testifying for the ivermectin one, uh, within about 36 hours, we decided to mutually part ways. Because they really, in order for me to work there, they were willing to give me a new contract, but it had lots of First Amendment restrictions. And you should I, have said nothing to the fact you're a New Yorker in Wisconsin. <laughs> exactly. Before the vaccines. And this is before the vaccines, right? And then... Um, as the FLCC came to prominence, and I think Paul and I became uh, much more public in trying to give good guidance, pragmatic, sound medical advice, especially around, you know, horse dewormers and stuff. Um, you know, things got a little bit more difficult, and I, and I got another job, and that was an interesting experience because um, it was a hospital in uh, central Wisconsin that had a really difficult time recruiting specialists. They were exhausted because they'd been battling the pandemic. They'd been working constantly. And my partners were really happy to, to hire me. So I was there as an independent contractor. However, from about day one, the administration of the hospital was telling them to fire me. Get rid of Corey. Get rid of Corey. And they had a lot of power because they said, if Corey goes, we go. And so, but the administration kept sending them different hit jobs in the media and all this stuff. But I just kept quietly working until what happened was uh, just one day, my partner called me and said, Pierre, you know, we, we don't need you anymore. And apparently, 
I was accused of telling a patient not to get vaccinated in the emergency room, and it was 100% false. Um, so I was just basically fired on trumped up charges. But, I mean, the, the, it's clear that they don't want a contrarian public figure, you know, working for a hospital. It just doesn't work. You know, they want everyone to toe the line. And, and so, you know, I, I found that I'm not employable, really, in the system. And to be honest, Ron, I'm actually freed from that. I, I, I will say it's transformed my life in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, the transition was difficult, but uh, I'm pretty happy what I'm doing now and what I'm learning and, and the people that I'm helping. But you, you haven't been sued like Dr. McCulloch, though, have you? No, but I've innumerable complaints to the medical board, yeah. not by a patient, all but, by... But you haven't doctors. lost your license yet? Not yet, huh? Okay. <laughs> you, 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 no, I'm not encouraging it. Um, Dr. McCulloch, I mean, you've yeah, suffered... Uh, I can just tell you, it's really no laughing matter, honestly, to, to be threatened like this. Um, so I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history. Uh, I studied the inter interface between heart and kidney disease. Um, I mentioned I probably chaired more data safety monitoring boards than any physician in America. And you know I've, I've lectured uh, to the FDA in the Congressional Oversight Panel before COVID. I've lectured at the European Medical Agency, New York Academy of Sciences. I was in the down named lecture at Harvard two, uh, in 2018, both in cardiology and nephrology. Before the vaccines and the safety issues of the vaccines, my contract was renewed as a major figure in academic medicine for, quote, no reason. No due process was followed in my contract. There was no two-thirds board vote. There was no board of directors vote, nothing. I was just asked to turn in my badge. In the course of that year, I had gotten large research grants, investigation of drug applications. I headed major clinical programs for COVID. I treated hundreds of COVID patients. I taught others how to do it. I showed that it worked. I testified in the U.S. Senate. I did everything I thought a physician should do in response to the pandemic, and that happened. Now, fortunately, I had a very good name in the community. I transferred my practice to another employer on the campus, but in a reduced capacity, and I kept going after uh, a, a period of, um, of changing over all the insurance contracts. And then the day the health system came out with the vaccine mandates, they filed a lawsuit against me uh, stating that I was dragging their name, the health system's name, into the media. Many of you know I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News and Newsmax and OAN. I've been on ABC. Uh, and uh, uh, the situation is I'm on staff at these hospitals. I admit patients to these hospitals. There is an intertwinement. The health system has me on their website as a doctor, uh, but yet they were suing me based on this, in, in, uh, this interwoven relationship that doctors have with patients uh, in hospitals. And so this lawsuit now has gone on for uh, over a year uh, with no conclusion. It's been a steady bleed of attorneys and resources and more attorneys uh, and, and, and the court system that's uh, defunct. In the meantime, I've been stripped of two professorships with no due process or faculty senate no courtesy phone call. These occur by, by certified letter. I've been stripped of two editorships after taking two journals and increasing their impact factor and doing a perfect job. Again, no courtesy phone call, no explanation, stripped. I've been stripped of every NIH committee position, every major industry clinical trial position. I have been stripped off of writing committees where I've actually written most of the paper. I'm no longer uh, an author. They're going to use my work. 
no explanation for what's going on. And then uh, towards the end of May, Dr. Corey, myself, Dr. Merrick, Dr. Sibley, who's here, we received uh, letters from the American Board of Internal Medicine in announcing that we are undergoing a professional uh, review for professional misconduct. I, I want to ask Dr. Corey, have they responded to your response? No, I haven't heard from them yet. No. And then, no. Shocking, huh? You know, our, again, just quick, quick yeah. describe your response because I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, so, um, you know, our lawyer works with us, the FLCCC, so we get this letter. Uh, I think the letters were almost identical. It was basically just a listing of statements we've either written uh, or said in interviews. And, and it just said, you know, you, are, you have violated the misinformation policy. Please respond to this uh, letter before the committee will meet to review your case. And, I mean, everything I said, I had plenty of evidence and data back it up. Um, but the lawyer actually looked at their misinformation policy that they'd instituted. And per their policy, the normal process is that they're supposed to provide me with the data showing that I'm misinformed or deliberately peddling misinformation. They didn't do that. They just echoed back the statements I made. And so we just wrote a very nice letter saying, you appear to be in violation of your own policy, so please reissue your letter consistent with your own policy and provide us the data showing how we got it wrong. There's two important points I want the public to know. In these letters, statements that were made under oath were brought up as statements at issue. Now, when a doctor, an engineer, a nurse, a professional makes a statement of our oath, you, the, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, to the best of your ability, when we're answering questions as people of medical authority, we're doing the best we can at that state of time, understanding the data. The fact that now, when someone testifies under oath, they are subject to professional reprisal and injury I think should put everybody on notice. Let me put you in the, in the uh, position of being that star chamber, those members. Uh, evaluate this statement. You're not going to get COVID if you get these vaccinations. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to be in the ICU unit, U unit, and you're not going to die. That was uh, President Biden in July of 2021 when we knew this was a lie. Correct? Absolutely. So, you started getting into the, the, the realm of misinformation here. Um, I've, I've been accused of it repeatedly. They just use a pejorative, right? But then you say, well, what, what did I say that's wrong, that's not true? You know, for example, my chart. It's a, that's your data. I, I know I assembled it in a way you don't like to look at it, but what's misinformation? Um, so how, how do we battle? You know, I, I, I'm... You know, on all these email groups, and I, I generally don't chime in. I just listen to, you know, a lot of this stuff's over my head because I'm not a doctor, not a medical researcher. But there is a growing frustration isn't necessarily the right word, but just a sense, and we've, we've been battling, we've been telling people the truth, we've been doing everything we can, and it's just, it's just not breaking through. I mean, is the COVID cartel, are they going to win? Let's face it. The victors write history. Um, how do you respond to that? What, 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 what can be done? I know Dr. Malone, you said truth has its own power, and it does if it gets out. Can you just take a stab at uh, what do you think we need to do? So, um, number one, we have to recognize that we are in an environment of total information warfare, total information and thought control. It's highly coordinated, and it's globally managed. 
So one of the things about bouncing back and forth between here and Europe and dealing with Latin America, et cetera, is you become aware that the same strategies, the same language, the same words are being used globally. So total information warfare, facts are irrelevant. The truth is something to be fashioned, to be actively controlled and manipulated. So, so just real quick, I mean, are we talking, let's, let's start naming some organizations like the Trusted News Network. I mean, you're, Trusted News Initiative. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I mean, what, I mean who, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds uh, advocacy journalism uh, across the United States. Advocacy journalism is basically journalistic propaganda. Okay? They, this is the new reality in journalism is that journalism should be advocating for a particular endpoint. It should not be objective. It should not be trying to be fair, fair and balanced. It should be advocating something. We're, then we have all of this data now that's coming out that uh, Google, so um, Alphabet, Meta, slash Facebook, Twitter, have hired a massive army of ex-CIA and FFD, um, FBI officers to manage this in misinformation landscape. Another thing we need to all process is, just as you suggested, the term misinformation, and remember there's a spectrum, mis, dis, and malinformation, all of which have been bundled and defined by Homeland Security as constituting domestic terrorism. Okay, it's a clear, unambiguous statement. Okay? Misinformation, just so we get the language clear, is, is defined by Homeland Security as information which is incorrect but not politically motivated. Okay, so sharing information that's incorrect. How do you define incorrect information? The definition comes from the Trusted News Initiative. It's been accepted by all major corporate media outlets and tech. Any information or interpretation of data which is inconsistent with the public health authority of a nation state or the World Health Organization is by definition misinformation. Disinformation is things that are inconsistent with the party line is what we're saying, but are being spread for some uh, political motivation. So that's disinformation. You're trying to advocate for a political objective, which is apparently no longer acceptable um, to do. So you're probably guilty of more disinformation than we are, since you're a senator. And then mal I, I'm innocent. Mal malinformation is the most insidious of the group. Um, malinformation is true or false information, which causes the viewer or listener, the receiver, to question their government. So that is malinformation. Now there's a new category that's just been added and applied by Twitter to Epoch Times, which is dangerous information. So the, so the justification for deplatforming Epoch Times off of Twitter is dangerous information, and in every case they never define it. And the reason is because if, they, if Twitter comes out and says, oh, the real reason why we deplatformed you is thus and such, then we can all take that direct to our lawyer and uh, go get Twitter. So they will never tell us what our sin is. They will only accuse us of the pejorative which for the majority of America is good enough. I hear it all the time. The Washington Post has said that Robert Malone is a purveyor of misinformation. Therefore, I will not listen to anything that Robert Malone has said. So again, I think we, we all understand you know, what we've all experienced. So I think my question is, 
how do we counter it? Okay. What, 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 so, what, so, and again, and I'm not talking about process-wise. I'm talking about what information, what truth will have the power to break through that. I mean, certainly one of the things, I I, I, one thing that, that drives me nuts is we're just not doing autopsies on these sudden yeah. deaths. Yeah, so there's, there's all kinds of ways that the access to verifiable fact is being blocked. Um, and, it's, and it is a concerted, harmonized, global campaign. So you just got to get, uh, you know, just get along with that. That's the truth of the matter. Um, the, and it is largely managed through these very large corporate entities, all of which have common owners. Um, and I just named some of them. And then there's the big tech, the, I mean, the big uh, corporate media that all is members of the Trusted News Initiative. In my opinion, we are in an environment in which traditional media is basically setting itself on fire in the context of what they've done. More and more people are seeing it. A large fraction of the population is actually experiencing the effects that Matthias Desmet describes in his seminal volume that, by the way, has got huge um, sales right now. Um, the Psychology of Totalitarianism, the phrase that I used that uh, triggered Google so hard, which was mass formation psychosis. A large fraction of the population has been hypnotized by all of this concerted information and thought control, which is based largely, if you look at the tactics, the tactics and the methods are consistent with those that have been developed by our intelligence community and deployed internationally for years. But again, I'm kind of running out of time. I do want to get to, for example, as I write my 44th and 45th oversight letter, what information should I be pressing our federal health agencies for? What should we be expecting they're collecting? What, for example, well, we had a great for, example. For example, and I kind of want to ask you two, if you're a family member and you have an adult child just suddenly die, what should you be demanding of the medical community? Because I, I know when, I, I won't talk about, I, I know autopsies are not regularly performed and very difficult to agree people to even get the medical establishment to agree to perform one. I mean, what, what, but, what information should we, but, but citizens, me, start demanding? Yeah, let me just say that uh, two boys, aged 16 and 17, died in Connecticut. They died at home. Parents didn't even get a chance to do CPR. Fortunately, these parents did request an autopsy, and the Connecticut coroner did the autopsy. And fortunately, he contacted pathology departments at University of Michigan and University of Minnesota, and they agreed after the boys died on days three and four after Pfizer, second shot, that the vaccine caused the death. That paper by Gill, published in Archives of Pathology, is what needs to happen now over and over again, that parents need to demand for and pay for autopsies. And it, is, it costs money. It probably costs a couple thousand dollars. Not everyone can afford it, but some can. And the other thing that's not happening is the outrage. Where is the family outrage? When a 17-year-old child dies, there is a vignette. The natural death of a 17-year-old child is a long history of cancer, cystic fibrosis, a motor vehicle accident, suicide, or a drug overdose. They just don't evaporate into death at home. Uh, sudden death now, I'm a cardiologist, we study this, this is well worked out. Our professional athletes are so well studied and we rule out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, congenital coronary anomalies, other things. I am telling you, they are now approaching a thousand professional athletes in Europe who have dropped dead on the field. 
The inexplicable thing is the lack of outrage of family members. Dr. Corey. I, you know, I, I don't know the answer because we are in a, an information warfare, and the, those that are creating these um, false truths, these false consensuses based on no data, um, have largely succeeded. Um, I do think there's a growing minority. I think what's going to change, because we just don't have the power to combat that kind of control over information dissemination. But I'm just going to go back to the scope and the scale of this. This is a humanitarian catastrophe. And it's my hope that I don't care if you control every newspaper, every television, you cannot, for a, a, you know, a, a, an indefinable time, suppress a humanitarian catastrophe. There are people dying, dropping dead with alarming regularity, healthy, fit, they are now getting consumed with cancers. This is not just hyperbole. This is not just dramatizing. I mean, young people like Dr. McCullough said they're not supposed to drop dead. Athletes have always dropped dead at very low rates that have been consistent throughout decades. Now they're in the hundreds, if not thousands. And so I, you know, and the, so the, the data point that I think that you can't suppress a, a fraud of that scale. Yes, you could FOIA the, the, the trials data. You can see all the shenanigans they pulled. I don't think that's what moves the needle. I think, I think the amount of human loss is going to reach an extent where it's going to stop. And, and I think we're starting to see signals. They're not showing up for more boosters. I think there's enough, yes. there's enough going on right now that people are giving pause. And I think a sequence of thoughts has to occur. They have to first understand how toxic it is and how bad it is for their health. Then after the second thought, which is... I've been lied to, and I've been lied to from everywhere, and many people have participated either willfully or just ignorantly in propagating those lies. And I, and I, I hold a lot of physicians responsible. They are complicit. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying they willfully did it. But I would say their blind and misplaced faith in captured regulatory agencies, when I say captured, right, crony capitalism, the pharmaceutical companies and, and the vaccination manufacturers, they run those regulatory agencies. When we describe all of the stuff that they did, buried, suppressed, the regulatory standards that they just completely threw out the window, it was with one aim, to get as much product into the arms and to make sure the cheap stuff doesn't get sold, right? This is, I mean, I like sticking with profit motives, but the way in which they did that is just... I think people are going to recognize that, that this was a two years of unending lies. And, and, and when you see the overt action, so brazen, and yet the doctors didn't question. So when the FDA put up on their website, or CDC, we no longer going to test the vaccinated. You remember that when they tried to come up with that rule? The vaccinated, they're so good, they're not <coughs> stop testing. It's absolutely absurd. Then they tell the nation's doctors, stop checking antibodies before the vaccine. Because we don't... We don't have any evidence to suggest that that matters. So they basically threw out natural immunity, which is like one of the founding principles that we're taught as doctors. Fauci actually said that a few decades ago. Yeah. We, 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 I'm just going to stop there, Ron, yeah. by saying that I think one of two things happen is that it's going to be a growing mass like any grassroots movement. The truth will come out slowly, and it's never going to be quick enough for me. Or, I'm looking at my, my lawyer friends who are in the fight with us, it's going to be some legal action. I, I do think it's time for the courts. I think some massive fraud has to be uncovered through the courts. Now, I do think the courts are captured as well, so I'm not totally sure that will happen, but 
Those are my hopes, and I think one would happen sooner than the other. So we do have questions for the audience, Dr. Mullen, very quickly. Uh, the combination of FOIA and alternative media, I think, is the only tool we have right now. For instance, the Marion Gruber uh, documents that came out about why she resigned, which is the undue pressure on uh, the FDA from both the administration and the pharmaceutical industry to advance the boosters. I mean, when, when what I, the feedback I'm getting all the time through social media and the podcasts and everything is um, for those that are still kind of in, in the narrative, the, the hot button for them is we've been lied to and the normal things that they would have done to protect us, they have bypassed. So we have uh, questions from the audience. Yeah, I got a few questions from the audience. Okay, so it's not just the CDC, it's the entire HHS. It's the NIH, FDA, CDC access, right? Um, um, I, 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 I don't think CMMS so far have heard anybody talking about that. It's got its own set of problems. Uh, I think that the question is powerful, and, and I think anybody being honest about it has to confront the fact that um, the leadership, the, the senior executive service core for all of those has been complicit in this amazing tragedy. Uh, and we cannot get rid of them. They cannot be fired because of the category within which they're employed. So we've got to fix that so that they can be moved out and replaced by people with integrity or we can't, we're gonna to have to somehow build a parallel agency to, there's no other way to solve this. So there are fundamental things, and this gets to these, these underlying legal aspects of how have we got to this point where we have a senior executive service and administrative state that basically controls everything, all of the US government, you know, when Ron says, I send them the letter and they basically tell him to pound sand, think that through. There's a sitting U.S. Senator saying, I'm trying to do diligence on you, answer my question, and they won't even answer his question. Talk about arrogance, okay? These people are completely entrenched, they cannot be fired, and they are just gathering their salaries and doing whatever they want to do. So, so, so let, let, me, let me tell you what it's going to take. It's going to take exposure. It's going to take whistleblowers. So, so here's my appeal. I keep making this appeal. If you are working in these agencies and you, and you have respect for them and you want these agencies to be respected again, if you want to restore integrity and credibility of these agencies, you have to come forward and talk to us. Now, I've got a whistleblower account. You can contact our office. We will maintain your, anonym, your anonymity. But it's going to take the good people, and I'm sure there are plenty of good people in these agencies. They have to come forward, and they've got to tell first Congress, and you can do it anonymously, but you have to tell the American people what is happening. And it's got to stop. And again, I think if you go back to the basic mission statements of the, you know, FDA is about food safety, drug safety. CDC is about gathering information and providing it to the medical establishment and the public. They've, done the, they've, they've hidden it. They haven't gathered it, and they've hidden the information. 
So again, this is my appeal. We need whistleblowers, and we need a lot of them. There is safety in numbers. And again, I can maintain your, your anonymous stature here. So please, come forward. Tell me, tell the American public what's been happening. If I can amplify this, the FOIA documents regarding Marion Gruber and her colleagues' resignation in response to the pressure coming from the executive branch to the FDA and from pharma to the FDA reveal that these are people of integrity. They said, no, I'm not going to go along with this ploy. I'm going to resign my position, which in, in federal government is just a step above committing suicide. They're throwing away their pension. Okay? These people that demonstrate your point that there still are good people in these agencies. Um, they're hiding. They're scared. They need cover. Um, and what I, you know, the, there's multiple papers out now talking about in the lay press that um, the NIH is hemorrhaging personnel, the FDA and the CDC are hemorrhaging personnel. I hear that if you go knock on the door at the FDA over here in Rockville and try to submit your IND, the only people that are there are the security guards. Everybody's working from home. That's true. They're, they're just not around. They're hiding. So again, I'll, I'll say thank you all before we turn it back over to Emil, but well, thank, yeah, thank you all. Let's give our, our panel a round of applause.